ancient times that book was said to unlock the gates to another dimension, to another race of beings. I do not share those beliefs, nor do I fully understand them. However, I know enough about strange things not to laugh at them. Dunwich are just like everyone else. They're just more honest about it. Hi again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the IWMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And it has been movie time again. Movie time once again. We're... I'd never even heard of this version of this story. <laughs> so that's two movies in a row that where you, you at least hadn't heard of the movie. Yeah. Last time it was The Razor's Edge. This time it was The Dunwich Horror. The 1970 version of The Dunwich Horror starring Dean Stockwell. Okay, we're getting into Cthulhu Mythos, Dad. I, I'm prepped this time. Either one of us could go off the rails and we need something more than a ball of paper. I don't plan to go in uh, and talk too much about the the story. Okay. But I will say, this is probably my, the original story is probably my second favorite Lovecraft story. My favorite by far is At the Mountains of Madness. And I still am hoping against hope for Guillermo del Toro to make a movie version of that. Oh, goodness. That would be amazing. But uh, the... His story, The Dunwich Horror, is definitely in the running for uh, my second favorite Lovecraft story. And I want to say up front about Lovecraft, yes, he was an awful racist person with a lot of horrible ideas and a lot of horrible ways to express them. Absolutely there. Absolutely acknowledged. Um, I don't know that I want to say more about that. I can acknowledge that about him without having to ignore the influence that he had on literature, especially in his genre. Unfortunately, that that's uh, that is the history. Death of the author in that sense. Yeah, yeah. But this is uh, this was a movie from 1970 based upon one of his most famous stories, the Dunwich Horror, which is very well isolated. It's it's one of these like central to the larger mythos, especially the way pop culture has worked off of it because of the pieces it adds. But on its own, it's actually a pretty self-contained story. It's 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 got a nice it's got the closest thing to a three-act structure that some of them do. And that yeah. kind of fits interpretation like this very well. It does. It's a it's a complete story in that sense. It doesn't need anything external. It was part of Lovecraft's effort to essentially create a fictional world in New England with Arkham and Miskatonic and essentially make that available to himself and maybe other writers in his circle to set things in this strange county. But none of that has to be known or or uh, utilized to appreciate this story because it is so complete in itself. And in some weird way, I feel like the same way that the story itself is attempting to introduce pieces that you can use elsewhere, this version of it is absolutely showing off effects and stylistic tropes that you can use in other stories elsewhere. Oh, no question about it. This this is a stylistically similar to its source, 
in that that like here here's a buffet of concepts you can run with because my goodness i have seen scenes of this movie pulled out into entire tension arcs of other stories oh i bet you have there's a reason i chose this for the end of may this year okay and i chose it after our most recent viewing of ghostbusters <gasps> oh wait oh that is very much this is the origin of some of those special effects ain't it the the special effects but also some of the tropes and the structure of the story and the the finale yeah there're going to be spoilers for this story in this movie the finale i in the temple at the top of the steps where you're calling otherworldly beings down from the sky. If this, I, I hadn't really considered the fact that Ghostbusters is kind of a, a buddy comedy walking into a Lovecraft mythos and challenging it to a bar fight, but it is. It, it really is. I love that. And I think the story owes a lot, and some of those specific set pieces. Now, this isn't the only movie ever to use that kind of set piece, but I think that... They match up between this, not only the Dunwich Horror, but this version of the Dunwich Horror and Ghostbusters. They match up very, very closely. I would be shocked if um, Ivan Reitman and or some of his design crew and effects crew had not seen this movie and been well-versed in it. And I don't mean to t that to take anything away from Ghostbusters at all. It's This is a, a fascinating movie. To be one of many from whom you're going to borrow and steal and learn to make a movie like Ghostbusters that was groundbreaking because of the way it put so many things together. Oh, yeah. <sighs> I'm trying to figure out where to start on this thing <laughs> then, because I can look at the macro, but once I get into the, the, the actual breakdown of how this one tells the story, it's really choppy. It's choppy unless you kind of separate it out. And that tends to be how I think of it, is there are really two storylines that, that interweave at, at points. There is, the, there is the Wilbur Waitley story with Dean Stockwell as Wilbur Waitley. My goodness, what a performance. And Sandra Dee as Nancy Wagner, the woman who falls into his clutches. Which is also really well, well acted. It is, yeah. I mean, for, for what that role was, I thought uh, Dee did a good job with it. And then there is the Professor Armitage storyline with Ed Begley as Professor Armitage. And there is um, Donna Bacala as Elizabeth Hamilton, uh, Nancy Wagner's uh, friend. And they're like investigating the mystery partly to find out what has happened to uh, Nancy. And those two are the ones that actually play the most protagonist kind of role. And I mean that as much in the they wander into the right place and get to talk with the characters in that like RPG protagonist, like chat with all the NPCs way. And they've got the most Scooby-Doo door gag energy at times, but not as silly. <laughs> The fact that this is interleaving, interweaving these two different uh, stories means that there's a lot of getting from A to B that gets cut out of the professor's story that gets left in for tension in the Waitley story. <laughs> You're right. In the Waitley story, Waitley really is the protagonist. I mean, he's an antihero. What he's trying to do is horrible, and we don't want him to succeed. But 
we are following his efforts to achieve a goal and to overcome the obstacles. And as, as the audience, we are presented with information that he will have, not completely, but more information in line with what he has compared to with what Nancy has, which means that we're witnessing Nancy unaware of what we know is the danger. And that means that we become aligned with Waitley in terms of what we perceive in that world compared to her going through it. Meanwhile, with the professor, we're learning things at the same time they do, which means our information on that side lines up with them and they may remain protagonists for us on that side. And the two things that cause these two storylines to connect to one another are, well, one is Nancy. Mm -hmm. Waitley needs Nancy for his diabolical plans. And Elizabeth and Professor Armitage want to save Nancy and find out what's going on. And, And the more they learn, the more they realize Nancy is in danger. The other thing that connects the two stories is the Necronomicon. Which is... Mike, okay, I'm going to divert into prop discussion here. They made it look more boring, and that's somehow more sinister. (laughs) Every other thing I ever see depict the Necronomicon, it's this misshapen book with this frayed appearance that is just unsettling because it breaks design convention. Meanwhile, the prop for this is so much more a thick library book. And I'm like, (laughs) getting a hit in the head with the Necronomicon almost looks like it would do as much damage as anything you could pull out of it because it's just this big, heavy tome. But somehow making it generic is actually more terrifying. Oh, I like that. Any book in this library could have that kind of awful power. Exactly. Although this one, I think this might be on loan to the local university library because Professor Armitage is there as a, a visiting lecturer, but they just kind of have it in the middle of the library with, um, in a glass case with this cheaply printed label on the front of the case, the quote Necronomicon. Oh yeah. This, this was a librarian told the night before we need a display case. (laughs) That display case doesn't even have like a hasp to lock it closed. It is just sitting there held shut by gravity. This is not good preservation, and it bugs me. Now, some depictions of the Necronomicon, you would be able to trust the book to defend itself. Yeah. Not this one quite so much. No. <laughs> but at the beginning of the uh, of the movie, when Arbonage is there at the university, he's been giving lectures, he's answering questions from students, a lot of students of the occult, apparently, uh, or at least of the fringes of anthropology. This Wilbur Waitley guy wants to borrow the book. He convinces Nancy and Elizabeth to let him borrow it and, and read it in the library for a while. And we get the impression that he's kind of got some hypnotic powers, both with his eyes and with these rings that he wears, and the very cool, spooky, soft-spoken way that Dean Stockwell plays this character. Absolutely. They also kind of really easily establish the fact that Elizabeth is not as easily swayed, but she's also kind of like really quickly fed up with Nancy having this this very easy time just trusting this guy. It's there's this 
Why are you attracted to proto-goths with good <laughs> with good confidence, Nancy? It's getting to be a problem. And kind of right off the bat. It's so interesting seeing Dean Stockwell in this because it's it's not the kind of role we tend to associate Dean Stockwell with. But this was like right at the right point. In 1970, he was playing the the sexy, not quite hippie, intelligent wizard. And he does a great job with it. I am I am so used to seeing him in like FMV games and in uh and quantum leap. Quantum leap. That's of the course. word. Yes, quantum leap. I'm used to him being competent guy frustrated with the fact that he has to do the thing competently right now because no one else is. I'm used to that sort of tone from him. But the fact that that's rooted in just being able to say things with an utter confidence, yeah. you can give him any line. It doesn't matter how much techno babble is in it. He will be able to say it with a, trust me, this is how that works. And he does a great job of going back and forth in this between, well, you know, we don't need to go into all that nonsense, it's old superstitions and things, and speaking in a very educated way with Armitage about the occult. Uh, clearly, he knows this, but he's happy to be underestimated. So when he can, he minimizes what he knows and what he plans, etc., and I'm also used to seeing Dean Stockwell play really weird characters in David Lynch movies. Yeah, that too. And maybe that's the closest thing to him playing Wilbur Waitley. But him as the young, charismatic figure in this movie, very different from anything he's played in a, a David Lynch movie. But, you know, this is not the first Dean Stockwell movie we have watched and talked about for the podcast. Oh, what else was he in? We uh, we talked about some movies last summer that he was in. I'm trying to remember which one. He played Little Nick Charles Jr. in the Thin Man movies. That was him? <laughs> that was Dean Stockwell. Pardon me while I have a small existential crisis. Oh my goodness, this dude. <laughs> so Little Nick Charles grows up to be uh, suave, charming, charismatic, 60s sex wizard. No, I just want the Thin Man versus Cthulhu. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's written that. Oh, yeah. They've written every other version of Cthulhu out there. <laughs> and, and with challenging uh, the, the old ones to, a, to like a drinking contest, and they, <laughs> and they fall back asleep. So, Waitley's plan through this is he needs the book because he needs to complete a ritual. And we learn over time that the reason for the ritual is to... Bring back the old ones, the great old terrible gods who are going to destroy the world, maybe give power to their servants like Waitley. I'm not really entirely sure about that part. They, he just wants the great thing that's supposed to happen to happen. And why he's so invested in this has to do with his, um, his lineage. Yeah, there's something very cosmic insurance fraud about the whole thing. <laughs> like existence is here, but we're gonna burn it down and cash in the uh, insurance policy on it, and that'll somehow be good. It's like, <laughs> wait, what? Okay, but yeah, he's got a he's already got connections because the cold open to this entire movie is this really wild. What we learn later is origin story bit, I guess. Yep, but it's really. Just like immediately awkward. 
in the right way. It's immediately unsettling. Yeah, it's it's a birth scene. It's a labor scene. And we learn later this is when then Wilbur was born. But it's not normal because it's got a bunch of strange ritually stuff added to it to some extent. And right. the doctor's pulled in, but the doctor's really confused about what's going on and what's happening and Yeah, the doctor who signed the the paperwork really didn't attend the birth itself. That was done by by other members of the Waitley household and, and their you know, people connected to them. And the doctor and this is the kind of thing that Armitage learns and therefore we learn throughout the course of that prong of the story. And that is that there are actually twins born, and one of them didn't survive, but Wilbur did. And of course, the again, spoiler, the big reveal in the movie, both twins survived. Just that Wilbur took after his mother, who was human, and the other took after the father, which was not. Yeah. The brother is very much... When we later see him, he is very much an interpretation pulled straight from Forbidden Planet. Very Forbidden Planet-ish, you're yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that monster from the id. We never see him completely because he doesn't exist thing. But it's really well done on that. But they have a lot of fun with his, like, affecting the environment. He's a right. brother played by the set. We see the, the, we see a few shots, both early and then late at the end, that rely very heavily on quick flashes and cuts and negative photography and very artfully and distorted, um, uh, uh distorted cinematography of a little bit of a model towards the very end. But you're right, for the most part, we see things like a darkened lake with a wind sweeping across it, or we're following down this um, abandoned country road as some unexplained wind moves everything ahead in its path, like we're from the point of view of the monster. It's really well done in that sense, because they, they don't overdo it. Absolutely. And I mean, it's immediately jumping into that kind of spoilery nature to skip around time-wise, but yeah. we always do that with film. And I will also use this as an opportunity to say that compared to some films, this is probably very epileptic unfriendly. This is, like, some films are okay. This one yeah. is very much flashing lights, bright colors. A lot of- That can definitely mess with you. Could be a trigger for anyone with any kind of photosensitivity. I'm not even very- much of a problem, but I was a little dizzy after some of these scenes with how much it flashed itself. Yep. So just a heads up if you are going to watch the same point, they are disorienting in a lot of ways <laughs> and they're effective at that, but sometimes that's much. Yeah. And you know, as long as we're talking about these things, this movie probably had more sex in it than most of the movies we have seen. Yeah. Not that it was explicit, really, but it was thorough in its careful avoidance of being too explicit for a movie of whatever rating they wanted in 1970. Yeah, this is like, where's that line? Because, I'm you know, more, right up on it. yeah, more so than Lovecraft ever chose to dwell on in his prose, they really lean into this is the sex magic ritual and um, 
you know, I re- there there is some nudity because um, uh, Nancy does have these weird nightmares with the kind of painted orgy hippies. Oh yeah, and and you know we we do see some nudity there. So so yeah, this is um, yeah, more so than other movies that we've talked about for the podcast, I think. But you know, it was. It, Roger Corman was producer of this movie. They wanted to hit all the exploitation buttons they could to get people in seats, uh, and and that was one of the tools. Yahtzee, they got all of them. <laughs> but in general, it's it's taking all of these stylistic things. It, it's the 1970s. It's pulling a lot of stylistic things. The opening title sequence animation is on its own an impressive little scene and an impressive little, like summarization of the film before the film airs but it's all silhouette paintings that transition from one to the other and it is simultaneously it's just the smoothest 70s thing i've ever seen it's very cleverly done and it changes perspectives where a landscape we shift perspective and now that's the figure and there's some other landscape and something that's the background becomes the foreground some of the things that it depicts are just so sudden and goofy, it's hard for me not to laugh sometimes. Oh, like, you yeah. know, it's Satan's snacks. Hey. But when I really step back, it's it's well done. And it's and it's thoughtfully done, I think. Oh yeah. Between the really wild cold open and that title sequence, it primes you in terms of tone for the rest of the film. And in some ways it has to push a lot of any story like this. It is going to give you that creeping horror until it builds up to a crescendo. It's going to want to add some form of preview early on in order to make sure that you know what you're building to. The films that don't bother doing that are the things that fall flat later, I think, because you don't know how long it'll build for and you don't know what it's building to. But if it gives you this like burst and then it lets you sit in for the rest of the film, that can actually be more effective. And it, this does this is a fine example of that curve because it it kind of freaks you out at the beginning and lets you think about that for the rest of the time. Maybe that's just what I prefer in these, but it's like, thank you. I liked that preview. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to be now, surprised, at least by the tone. Now I can deal with library talk for a little <laughs> while while Waitley gets a book. And I've got to say, there's a lot of cool library stuff in this. We talked about the Necronomicon uh, being in there, but uh, we do return to the library later on. Yes. Because eventually uh, Waitley is desperate enough. Armitage won't let him borrow the book. So he, he's, but the time is right. He needs to complete this ritual. So he breaks into the university library, which is incredibly easy, apparently. And, uh, and he steals the book. And has to deal with the library cop. Cue awkward fistfight. A long, drawn-out fight that does a lot of damage. Ends up with the cop, the, the, the library guard, uh, security officer, dead. Because he happened to push Waitley into the corner where there was a suit of armor, complete with a halberd. And... Waitley made use of what was available. Good to know the library doesn't put locks on its lent books 
uh, on the books, it's been lent from other universities, but it does have someone sharpening the halberd <laughs> regularly, apparently. <laughs> this is Miskatonic for you. This is where your tuition money goes. But we all, just in general, we go from library to Waitley, like, asking to get a ride home to manipulating her car so she's so Nancy's stuck there and then hypnotizing her with magic and tea right cuz Waitley lives in this big old house full of creepy magic things and uh, yeah she winds up stuck there because he essentially doesn't let her go and and uh drugs her yeah which is really really awkward and intentionally highly creepy and disturbing yeah i mean that's their point is how awful he is and it it definitely raises the stakes in the armitage and elizabeth storyline while they're trying to find out what's going on and what kind of danger is nancy in. and they go to the place and nancy who's now totally under waitley's power says she's fine and she doesn't want to leave but they learn more and more to suggest that she really is in danger all of these scenes are kind of boring sounding. There is a look at all the art in my house scene and things like that. And if it wasn't for setting a good tone before, the amount of creepy they're able to pack into something so slow wouldn't work. I mean, I don't know how you make tampering with a car creepy like this was, but there's something about the like reach in and just smoothly rip a hose out and leave that is able to be disturbing because it's like how are you that strong and why'd you just do that i like i kind of want to hear the nancy calling uh car talk afterwards like <laughs> what's going on with my vehicle it won't start it's like i don't know someone would have to have ripped an entire hose no one could do that a new but england death wizard uh <laughs> stole ho hoses out of my car how do i fix that how do i fix that but it's like how do you make breaking someone's car creepy? They do it. That's that's clever. And some of that is in the direction. Some of that is in the um, the music. I thought the score was it was not it was kind of uneven, but sometimes it was very effective. But a lot of it is also down to Dean Stockwell's performance. Oh yeah, where he does he does everything so smooth, and he has this very confident and incredibly soft spoken manner about him that almost everything he does seems hypnotic. And the exceptions are, there are some scenes when he is under pressure or he has gotten angry and suddenly that falls away. And the contrast makes those scenes really powerful because suddenly he's gone from smooth and charming to, I no longer know what to expect from this guy. That seems dangerous. He's twitchy. Yes. He is... He is almost, I didn't think I'd make this comparison. There's something slightly Max Headroom about his disjointed <laughs> twitchiness when he's under the pressure. I guess so, yeah. He's like, yeah. he's like jumping from thing to thing just a little. And there's this slight movement of like pivoting faster than he should. That's very clever, but it's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it really, it really makes you kind of, kind of uneasy the, the 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 smooth hypnotic Waitley is une brings unease in one way, and the sudden twitchy, unpredictable Waitley 
is frightening in a different way. Yeah, it's subtle, but it's it's just enough to bug you. And by contrast, I kind of like Ed Begley as Professor Armitage. Oh, yeah. Because he has this great combination of academic authority. He's used to teaching people, and he's used to people paying attention to what he says and recognizing his, his, him as a, uh, an expert. And, that, and yet, during this investigation, you can see him go through these cycles of, I am out of my depth. I don't understand what this is that I'm learning. And then using his knowledge and his intelligence to put two and two together and say, oh, gosh, now I know what that means. And it's terrifying. I need to learn something else. And the, you go through another cycle of that. This is a man who has done a lot of research in the theoretical, suddenly running headlong into the practical and having to apply things he never <laughs> thought he would there. Especially towards the end, it's like, I'm having a wizard battle. I know these words, but there's every time he says, like, counter words to make things not happen, there's this small, like, Am I about to have to do that? I guess so. Pause at the start of it. It's really good. I love that wizard battle at the end where Waitley is trying to finish the, the ritual. He's got Sandra D um, you know, spread out on the altar at the top of the, uh, the cliffside. The, the cliffside where there's this old temple of his people. They're going to call the old ones. And he's reading from the Necrodomicon he stole. And Waitley, excuse me, uh, Armitage shows up at the bottom of the steps and just starts shouting other magic words in this same ancient language. And they just kind of yell at each other. And it's, you add that to the wind and the music and the, the recent glimpses we've had of the monster. And it is, it's great. There's not a lot of flashy lights. It's not like the wizard duel in Big Trouble in Little China, but it's very effective. There's something very much about it, like, if you've got one person writing down something and every time someone else says a thing, they accidentally write down what the other person said. <laughs> so it's like writing, writing, writing. No, 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 no I didn't mean to stop that. Stop, uh, I'm trying to write. Th no, no, stop that. There's this back and forth in there, but it's very, very tense in doing so. And there's this clear sense that when Armitage learned all of this, he was learning it as an academic and an historian, not because he believed these words were really magic. But by the time he, he did believe that, because of what he had seen, what he had learned, he still knew all of these spells and things he had learned when he thought they were just history and superstition, and he could still use them. Mm -hmm. That was great. Like, oh, I have been multi-classing. <laughs> Allow me to use this list. But the, the lead up to him learning all of that is, while... All of Waitley's stuff is like out in the field near the house and in the house a lot as he manipulates Nancy into becoming the the pawn he needs. The professor is running around town, like checking town records and learning information about the family. And like every time he digs in, it's always got a piece to lead to somewhere else and a little bit more unnerving information every time and it's kind of like no one bothers talking about these things they're all they all have a tiny fragment of the puzzle and that's enough to bother them as in the town yeah. he's going around picking up all the pieces putting them together and seeing the bigger picture and that's the scary thing 
And eventually, I'm not sure that it does any any anybody any good, but there is a mob that is gathering against Waitley because the monster, once the monster is loose, and this is like his twin brother, the monster, not the tremendous, incredibly powerful old one from another dimension that he's trying to call. When his his brother monster is wandering around and he winds up setting fire to a uh, a farmhouse and a, a whole mob shows up with their pitchforks and shotguns and know that it's Waitley. I'm not really quite sure what Armitage had in, in mind for this because he he and the sheriff managed to calm everybody down. Let's not lose our heads. Now, everybody get in your cars and follow me to the Waitley place. It's like, that's what they were going to do anyway. Yeah. In, in some unfortunate, in some ways, the way it's depicted, the angry mob is a side effect of the thing the doctor is trying to do. And it's really, that's the part that really bugged me the most about his story, because him gathering the information is one thing, but the angry mob felt dangerous in another way. Right. It's like, he's going to go deal with the thing that's actual, that's happening, but don't generate angry mobs. That's usually not actually a good answer. And if we had had just a, a beat, a shot, an, a reaction or something from, or ex- glances exchanged between the sheriff and Armitage and the doctor about this is getting dangerous. We There is an evil we have to deal with, but we can't be dealing with a violent mob at the same time. But there was never that recognition. It was, oh, like, oh, yeah, we're on our way to Waitley's. Well, you never know when a violent mob might be useful, so let's bring them along. Yeah, I kind of, I, I really do wish that that part was instead more like, go pack stuff and evacuate. Like, treat this like a natural disaster, even though it's supernatural. That would have been, it's not the time frame of when they would yeah. do that. That's not the thing they would have done in when the story was written for or when, uh, or in this 1970s film, I think that's kind of where we're getting that. But there's something about it where I wish it took a different tact because it's not used, but it's focused on a little. And yeah. that just means, the, weirdly enough, the big question you're left with at the end is in some ways, what happened with the mob? Well, we do learn that in a actually a set of shots that went on for far too long. Monster Brother winds up kind of taking all of them out. I don't know if any of the mobs survive because we keep going back and forth to shots of lots of flashing lights and occasional negative photography and then another member of the mob yells and falls over. Yeah. So I don't think it turned out well for them. No. But yeah, it's there's not a lot left to the town by the end. No. But it does follow a pretty well-put-together structure with these two parallel stories. Mm-hmm. Because as Waitley's plan gets towards its peak, where he's finally got the Necronomicon, he's got his pawn sacrifice, he's got his his timing all right, and he's starting the ritual, is when our doctor finally gets all the pieces to understand what he's doing with it and goes to confront him. And, and that's, that's that's when they actually converge. And that's Professor Armitage you're talking about, right? Yes. Because his he get he gains an ally who's the town doctor who knew more about the family history and they're kind of together at the end. Yeah. The doctor's kind of the one who drives him in what uh, the doctor's the witness. <laughs> the professor's yeah. the fighter. Right. But they do in the end manage to prevent Waitley's 
uh, horrible plans and prevent the uh, the world destroying monsters from from another dimension from entering and uh, and save Nancy. Yeah, who 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 kind of comes out of this really not as aware of everything that's just gone on <laughs> thanks to like I I I I take it she didn't remember much after being offered tea. No, I don't think so. She uh between the tea and the nightmares that it induced and everything else going on uh, I, I think that she's got a lot to recover from, but I'm not sure she has any real, real clear memories. But Waitley is destroyed. I forget what the status is on the brother. Does I he just... think the brother was cast back into the other dimension, I think. Yeah. I'm not sure. They're not very clear on that. <laughs> but the their father never actually does escape back into our reality. Yeah. Podcasting with your dad is one thing. <laughs> Summoning your dad from a parallel evil dimension, entirely different issue. <laughs> now, this is a movie where watching it again, it's been on my list of movies for us to watch for a while. And I was thinking about how I first saw this. Yeah, I kind of wondered that too. This is really high on the list of those movies that I saw when I was way too young. I got that feeling. I saw this, I must have been between. 10 and 15. Oh, goodness. But I saw it when it was on the 430 movie on uh, one of our local TV affiliates. And that, so, you know, you, know, you, you come home from school, you have a, a glass of milk and a cookie, and you watch otherworldly monsters um, attempt to destroy the world with the help of Sandra D. <laughs> I'm guessing that this... TV version that was aired at 4.30 Eastern Time on a weekday was cut down considerably. I assume it would have to be. I bet that they probably removed 99% of the shots of the the nightmare painted hippie orgy monsters. Yeah, they they kind of replaced the, the hallucinogenic tea with just some like sleepy time chamomile or something. And they probably cut out a lot of the final ritual that Wilbur Waitley was performing on the altar at the top of this cliff with the uh, the groggy Sandra D. Probably, so, although that's going to really mess with the pacing of that. Yeah, I'm sure it did. And I probably wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to the pacing. Uh, yeah, Sandra D got my attention somewhat, I'm sure. The library totally did. <laughs> that the whole thing they're interested in is this book. This must be one awesome book because I don't think I had read any Lovecraft before seeing this. And it was later reading that why does the Dunwich Horror sound familiar? Oh, wait a minute. This was that movie I saw on Channel 7 years ago. Oh, yeah. Very different movie, but this is what that was from. So yeah, I even the edited version on local TV, I was probably too young to be watching this. What they were thinking of putting it on at 4.30 in the afternoon, I don't know. But it was probably also the first Roger Corman movie, the first horror movie other than the Universal Pictures classic gothic horror monsters uh, that I had ever seen. So this kind of was my introduction to a lot of these ideas. The fact that this is such a middle of the career Roger Corman, it's very telling because I can see how all the shots are well are created in that style. I'm thinking of the other stuff I've seen of his, and it's not many things, but it's 
it definitely fits with what I know. And you know, I might have to take it back. I may have seen some of Corman's Edgar Allan Poe adaptations before I saw this. So this might not have been the first Roger Corman movie I saw. Yeah, I'm I'm used to him more as a producer who influences a director than I am <laughs> as him directly as a director. But it's still that same style. When he's producing, there's there's something to it. Yeah, he's very influential even when he's not in the director's seat. Mm-hmm. And you know, he he knew what kind of movies he set out to make. He knew what formula to apply. He knew where to get creative and where to give people what they expect. And um, and what we get out of it this time was a an odd Lovecraft adaptation, but one very much of its time. Yeah, it, it is. It is extremely 70s because it is what it removes from the story of the the novel. What it removes from that in terms of the scale of the monster, in terms of the the pacing and such by moving it to when it does and how it does it is it condenses it for film in that sense it makes it something that fits on the screen better but it also infuses it with a lot of art style a lot of tone that you'd see other films that are taking this same sort of occult styling it, it's very much in line with um psychomania hmm yeah some of that same kind of Here's the creepiness coming through. Here's the, 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 <laughs> the spooky magics. It's got that same tone. And there's, yeah. there's, there's just kind of an era. And this is a, an example that really hits a lot of those notes very clearly. Being able to, to so creepily make the glass sculpture on a table show up in more than one scene. <laughs> and it, definitely, it doesn't really ever pay off too much. I guess maybe being knocked over once is its payoff. But they make it creepy on its own, surrounded by creepy. And that's, that's a, a fitting art style as combination that is pulling all these threads together into a succinct note, a succinct tone that other things are similar to, but not quite as pure as this one puts it. And that comparison to Psychomania is a good one. I had forgotten about Psychomania. And you know, for all I know, I saw that one. I might have seen that one before I saw this, so it's hard to keep track of when I saw these movies I should not have seen. But but yeah, it's um it's that combination of horror out of weirdness and very well put together style. And that's where and I think we're safe now. We've talked about the movie enough. We can start to talk about some of the comparisons uh with the uh the original story without you having to shoot anybody with a Nerf gun. <laughs> the story, the monster brother is kind of more concrete, more physical. Yeah. He and takes- he's, he's roaming around the countryside and people are following him and with shotguns to no avail. And his absolute weirdness comes from Lovecraft's descriptions of him as this thing made of a, a million ropes with a million eyes. It a very ropiness was, I know, part of the description. Something that was physical and yet not coherent, as if it wasn't entirely within our dimension. And that worked really, really well in prose. If you had tried to somehow replicate in film something based literally on the description in the story 
and then showed it on screen as much as he winds up being on the page in the story, it just would have been silly and goofy. It would have been, you know, a pile of ropes with googly eyes. It, it, beco- it becomes the Pokemon Tangela. Right. <laughs> and that's um, and that's why using prose, when Lovecraft was writing prose, made a lot of sense. Using these cinematic techniques in a movie and giving us only like two glimpses of what this monster is really like and the rest done with suggestive photography. That I thought was perfect w- way to adapt those ideas to a movie. Yeah, that's that's where I was saying like this is this is the creature from Forbidden Planet in a different in another role. Like that was his starring thing and then he went on to other films <laughs> and he showed up in this one because it's that same like using cinematic and environmental techniques to imply the same sort of terror that the novel was trying to but using a different descriptor and that's where the the comparison with ghostbusters is is so interesting because this ritual that was kind of programmed into this building uh decades ago works and this other dimensional destroyer comes through and is manifest the, the the horrible destroying god is manifest in a ridiculously physical way not oh. just because the thing they're manifest as is physical it, excuse me is ridiculous but the fact that it's a thing that can walk down 5th avenue is just like why is it even walking if it's this super powerful thing from another dimension yeah in many <laughs> I'm just realizing how this entire month has gone down. It really is. We watched we watched the the combination of you know Bill Murray faces the existential in in Mortal Kombat and then it's you know Bill Murray being existential and then it's Mortal Kombat against the unknown as our next two things and I'm like, "Oh wait, this is really just the two parts that smashed together into the first thing, ain't it?" So maybe it's time. Maybe it's, maybe it's time. time to address our usual questions. Screen or no screen? I'm saying no screen. This was fun. It was interesting. And I think that this is a, a great example of various techniques and styles. But it was just too awkward at various points. And it was just unpleasant in ways that I feel like I'd want to take on clips of this for like analysis in film study, but I don't feel like I need to sit through the film any other time to get that story again. So I'm not going to suggest that you have to, if you need to like see a great opening, watch a clip of the opening. If you want to see an interesting supernatural fight, watch a clip of the ending, but you don't have to sit through the whole thing. And I'm saying no screen for that. Yeah, you know, I think this is going to be one of the rare movies where we both say no screen. And here I am having shown this to you, and I think it was worth us seeing for the podcast and and talking about, but I'm not going to recommend to anybody else that they see this movie. I don't think it was a, well, yeah, it was not a good movie. And, (laughs) And it's a worse movie now. Yeah. Because... I don't mind old movies, but all of the particular ways in which this movie is dated are the worst ways in which a movie can be dated. Yes, this is, 
it, it decided to scrub some elements of Lovecraft out of its narrative, and there's definitely plenty of awkward things about Lovecraft, but it replaced those with things that just didn't age well either. Right. So, yeah, I would say no, no, no screen. No there's screen. no need to watch this. There are plenty of other better movies to watch. Better Roger Corman movies to watch, if you like his style. Yeah. <laughs> better things where he takes the same stuff he practiced here and he uses it <laughs> elsewhere. Yep. So the question then becomes, revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Which is interesting always when we're doing an adaptation. It is always a challenge there. So I think we've got, uh, we've got some flexibility. So I guess we're talking about a Corman 70s version of the Lovecraft narrative. Does that mean that you're doing other... If you're, if you're reviving, does that mean you're doing other Lovecraft stories that might have a Necronomicon or a Mystatonic University connection and trying to continue the art style and the... The tone this one's doing, which we've just said no. is iffy, or are we? I think revival is all about the continuity. So a revival would have to be another story set in the same continuity, the same version of Lovecraft's Arkham as this movie was. It could be shot done in a different style, but it has to in some way acknowledge the events or lead to the events of this version of the Dunwich Horror. So it could be another Lovecraft story in a in the same version, in the same setting, but in a more modern style. A lot of possibilities there. Reboot would, I guess, be different interpretation of Lovecraft again. Right, or, Although, or, or just a different adaptation of the Dunwich Horror. Is yeah. I would think of a reboot of this. And then Rest in Peace is Let This Be, of course. Yeah. I'm going to say reboot, but I'm citing a specific interesting thing. We're describing how this scrubbed part of the original story out and replaced it with a new at the time style. And I think that was great, actually. And I think that those stories could use that right now. A lot of the versions of the Lovecraft mythos I'm seeing are actually becoming a little stale. They're becoming the same. I want to just call it wood boards and wet moss <laughs> punk like it's this same aesthetic style it's the same filigree font you put on everything it's becoming packaged in order for it, rapid iteration into different products a little more than i expected i did find the fact that this was a interpretation that was set when it was set with its style shifted to match interesting in that sense and so it would be nice to see stories that use the lovecraft pieces that are worth saving in different styles and being able to play with that more than i've seen a lot recently maybe we need a i mean there is some 90s and aughts nostalgia maybe we need a early ipod era version <laughs> of stories like this where you can have some fun with it because this movie flashed bright colors as part of its creepy horror elements. And bright colors are not what I ever see when you're doing horror nowadays. And that was nice. <laughs> so there's something there to be learned from it. Just don't have to watch the rest of it to get that. 
Your mention of iPods does make me want to go back to the original animation and add white headphones (laughs) to the little black silhouette figures, because now that I think about it, they look like early iPod uh, advertisements. They really do. (laughs) But but I agree. I would go with uh, a reboot. I would be interested in seeing a a good, well-thought-out new adaptation of the Dunwich Horror. Um, And although I love the movies that have been made by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, their version of The Call of Cthulhu and their version of The Whisperer in Darkness, each of which was designed and shot to seem as much as possible as a movie that was filmed and released in the year when the story originally came out. But I would be interested in a new version of the Dunwich Horror set in the 20, uh, 21st century, in the 2020s, and maybe specifically in a post-pandemic 2020s, and what that could mean. Oh, yeah. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of possibility there. And you're right, that, that Lovecraft, he goes through these cycles of popularity, and I think one of the recent ones has been just Lovecraft and Lovecraftian horror partly as window dressing. And you see that in a lot of the, oh, let's mash them up with something. Let's have you know, Lovecraft meet, you know, let's have Robin Hood meets Cthulhu, and let's have you know, Hard-Boiled Private Eye meets Yog sothoth and all these. And they lose sight of the utter alien weirdness and, and the insignificance of humanity that was the core of, of the horror that Lovecraft wrote about. And I think th- there could be some interesting approaches to that sort of story in uh in today's time and place it's all about knowing what to pull out of those stories and this was able to pull stuff which means other (laughs) things could yep so yeah we agree on both of those then no screen but yeah give us a new adaptation let's reboot it it's one of those stories at this point which will always be reinterpreted and that's probably good because it is a a linchpin for a genre and that simultaneously means that you can always return to it to root something in a genre, or you can always twist it to test what the limits and challenge whether or not that genre is as certain a thing as one might think. So having those sort of stories that you can you can always tinker with is useful. Sounds good to me. Oh, yeah. So thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much for downloading. We, uh, we really appreciate it. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the the distant 20th century. Ooh. In the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? You can find me at the website, bymatthewporter.com, and that'll have links to other things like Twitter. I'm also at bymatthewporter on Twitter or uh, at bymatthewporter on Twitch. And um, I think I've actually got a Clubhouse account now where I'm also by Matthew Porter, though I haven't used it yet. Yeah. We'll see what happens there. Um, so yeah, most places you'll find me under that name. Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as Item Crafting, on uh, Twitch as Item Crafting Live, and on YouTube as Item Crafting. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com. You can also find us on Twitter at uh, immpcast. But if you do go to that website, immproject.com, that's where you'll find links to all of our back episodes, and you'll also find a link to our Discord uh, and to our contact page. Uh, We'd love to hear from you there or on Twitter. Let us know what you think 
of H.P. Lovecraft adaptations? Any ones that you like in particular? Any stories you would like to see adapted uh, for the modern day? And you'll also find a link on that website to our shop if you like T-shirts, coffee mugs, other fun things. Do you care about Phobos? <laughs> if you don't, we have a, uh, a T-shirt and a coffee mug for you. Exactly. And uh, you'll also find a link to our Patreon. Anybody who can support us there, we really appreciate it. And uh, Patreon supporters do get uh, additional audio content and uh, Patreon supporters at the IMMP Movie Club level also will get a periodic DVD of something that is coming up on the podcast. So that's terrific. Anybody who can uh, can support us there. If you can't, that's awesome. We still hope you'll download and tell your friends about our podcast. And also, if you can uh, go on iTunes and give us a rating or a review, that always helps as well. So thanks again. We really appreciate uh, you listening. We uh, really look forward to being back in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch.